Well, Happy New Year again, and um, we are, I'm excited to be returning to our Hebrews series. You know, we took a break, I did a Thanksgiving message, and then we did some Christmas messages, and uh, we're halfway through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we've got uh, a lot more to come. And uh, today we find ourselves here in chapter 7, which I'll introduce in, in just a moment. But as I was reading chapter 7, and it's so rich with all kinds of information about uh, the high priesthood of Christ and His blessings and ministry in our lives uh, today and how superior He is to anything and everything else. I was reminded about how much we need that at a time like this. You know, 2020's gone, and I think we all say a hearty amen to that. And by the way, if you have not read it yet, I encourage you to read my uh, uh, newsletter or my devotional from last week, my blog, called uh, New, Same God, New Year. Same God, New Year. So it's on the website and you can also, uh, there's a printed copy back at the back if you're not a digital uh, person. But we've kind of turned the page on our calendars, and, and now we're in 2021. And there's no question that, that the past year was filled with all sorts of challenges. Let's just call them challenges, right? Suffering, loss, um, heartache, trials, tribulations. And, you know, we can we could focus on COVID if we if we have to. But, you know, I saw some great statistics uh, this year that we've almost had as many deaths this year complete in total as we had last year. I mean, in 2020, as we did in 2019. So just keep that in mind. Now, what happened in 2019, they didn't show you pictures of them and the mass media be involved in this misleading information and try to make. But people die. It's a tragedy of life. But people die. And uh, by the way, the flu this year, CDC's own website, I looked this up yesterday, 98% down this year. <laughs> I'm serious. Why? Because everything's COVID. Right? But total, I mean, if this was a massive pandemic, that means we need to give up all of our rights and stop worshiping God and stop shut down small businesses and uh, wear masks and do all these things, then you would see a massive uptick in the number of deaths. But we don't. They're the same. So we don't, it's not just COVID. To me, what made 2020 so difficult and so strange and heart-wrenching is just all of the fallout, all of the restrictions and trials and tribulations. And I, and I feel like, you know, 2021 has the potential to pick up right where 2020 left off. Um, things are, are quickly getting out of control. Uh, you know, I talked about in my Spirit of the Antichrist series how Satan and his co-conspirators on earth have been trying to usher in this one world system for centuries, and really millennia from Satan's perspective. And you can count on it. As long as Satan is the god of this age, this world is going to be a hell on earth, really. Now, uh, I had a radio interview with a guy uh, that he used that phrase just in the course of our conversation and I appreciate the fact that he kind of paused afterwards and he said you know what I really we really shouldn't say that because there's nothing we could ever face on earth that's anything close to hell and that's true that is certainly true so uh, maybe that's not the best analogy but certainly a world right now is filled with suffering and heartache and questions more questions than answers you know so as we begin the new year, I guess the question that I want us to examine as I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 7 is how can we experience heaven on earth in the midst of so much 
suffering. So we've been going through Hebrews. I'm calling this series Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in, in Trying Times. And as I said, we're kind of halfway through. We left off with chapter 6. We had a couple of messages in uh, chapter uh, 6. And the last one was, Our Hope is in the Lord from the end of chapter 6. And we're going to kind of go back to pick up the context here in a moment as we segue in uh, to chapter 7. But Hebrews, if you remember, was written in the late 60s A.D., so the church was around 34 to 35 years old at the time. And it was written to a group of Jewish Christians. These were Jews who had gotten saved. Now, originally the church was made up of all Jews who got saved. And then as the gospel began to spread westward, you saw more Gentiles getting saved. But this particular audience that the writer of Hebrews, who may well have been Paul, is addressing were Jewish Christians who had believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he had died and rose again for their sins, and they placed their faith in him as the only hope of salvation. But by the time Hebrews was written... Uh, the Roman Emperor Nero was really going bananas, and he was persecuting Christians, hauling them off into jails, even burning some at the stake. He was bursting into the uh, house churches and hauling Christians off. And so many of these Christians, many of whom, by the way, might have been there on the day of Pentecost 30 years earlier when the church began. So many of them had been saved for quite a while. Some of them might have been new believers, but some of them were mature believers, or at least They'd been believers for a while. But because they weren't mature, they weren't strong in their faith, they had not stayed in the Word, they'd become complacent. When life threw them a curve and persecution intensified, many of them began retreating back to what they perceived as the safe haven of Judaism. So they were abandoning association with the way and instead going back to revert to their old ways with the Judaistic system. Because the Jewish system was still sort of in cahoots with Rome and uh, still not being persecuted. But these, these new Christians are called the way. They, they were the ones that were getting the blame for all of the, the troubles. And so the writer of Hebrews writes in that context of difficult times, persecution, unsettling times, and he challenges these believers, and I believe the challenge is just as valid for us today, to hang on to their faith. Don't revert back to Judaism. Don't give up associating with fellow believers. Don't give up aligning yourself in your life and practice with the Savior who died and rose again for your sins. He died to save you. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he's big enough to handle whatever these struggles are. So when you get to chapter 7... He's going to talk more about Christ's priestly ministry. Now, we introduced this way back several months ago in chapter 4. There was a message back then that I titled, Have You Seen Your Priest Lately? And I mentioned then that we would have much more to say about Christ's priestly ministry. And now we come uh, to this chapter. The key verse, it's a big chapter. We're not going to necessarily camp out on every verse. I'm going to kind of give you a high-level flyby with some key uh, relevant points, I think. But the, the key verse that, the verse that jumped off the page at me is verse 26. Notice he says, For such a high priest, talking about Christ, notice that, that it's capitalized there, was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, <clears throat> undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Now we're going to come back in a moment and, and, and look at each one of those adjectives, holy, harmless, undefiled, and, and so forth. But I want you to notice that last phrase there on the screen. Higher than the heavens. 
higher than the heavens. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus, who, remember, in the context, just 30 years earlier, he had walked and talked on earth. He had spent three and a half years teaching and preaching and telling people to come to him. And then he was crucified on the cross for the sins of the world, put in a grave, rose again three days later, and then he ascended to the right hand of God. So for them, they, many of them knew this Jesus. They had walked and talked with him. And yet the writer says he has become higher than the heavens. What does he mean by that? This is a, a crucial point and concept that comes up again and again throughout the New Testament. And I think a lot of Christians overlook the significance of this reality. There are several verses that talk about Christ's current position today and his dominion over Satan and his minions, you might say, his system. For example, Hebrews started out at the beginning, chapter 1, with the introductory verses by reminding us that who being the brightness of his glory, talking about Christ here, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down, where? At the right hand of of the majesty on high. So remember the whole point the writer is making, and he, and he comes at it from several different angles, but if we could sum it all up, it's that Jesus Christ reigns supreme, that he is superior to anything and everything that you might be running to for refuge in a time of trouble. And it seems strange that the writer would need to tell Christians that, but let's be honest, we need to hear this too. We all know intellectually in this room, if you've trusted in Christ, that Jesus is our Savior. We sing the beautiful songs about the gospel and the old rugged cross, and we know that he's paid our sin debt. He defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead, that he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life if you'll simply trust him for it. We get that. And yet how many times in our day-to-day -day life do we, like these original recipients, instead of running to Christ, seek comfort, and relief in some other form. Right? This theme of, of Christ being in the heavens, and in fact higher than the heavens, higher than any power uh, that earth has to offer. You see it again and again. You see it in Hebrews 4. Uh, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Passed through the heavens. See, the heavenly realms are where Satan and his demons dwell. Now, they can come and go from earth, and they can also come and go currently into to God's throne room in heaven, and they can talk with him. We see that in the book of Job. Now, later, after the rapture, during the tribulation, that's going to be cut off. Satan's going to be banished to only the earth. But right now, there's this spiritual realm. Remember what uh, Paul said in Ephesians 6? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood and earthly things, but against principalities and powers and so forth, right? So in, in the Hebrews, again, here in chapter 4, which we've looked at previously, he talks about how he's passed through the heavens. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, in the heavens. See, these are verses that you'd kind of skip over in the, in the theme of Hebrews if you don't take the time to kind of go back uh, you know, and look at them. I don't even know that we really highlighted them in those particular passages in, in the series. But as we uh, think about him being higher than the heavens, these verses 
kind of came to mind. And, and later on, we're going to get to one of people's favorite verses in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we're reminded to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. Where's that? In heaven. We know that Jesus, 40 days after his ascension, his resurrection, ascended. And where, where did he ascend to? He was taken up from you into heaven, Luke tells us in the books of Acts. In the book of Acts. And he's going to, by the way, someday come back from heaven. And then, you know, we could think of Ephesians chapter 1, talking about where, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Same idea. But where is that? He goes on to describe it as far above all principality, and power and might and dominion, and, and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Even though we talk a lot about Christ not taking the throne and inaugurating the earthly kingdom until he returns in fulfillment of prophecy, don't ever forget that he is Lord of all right now. He is God. <clears throat> he is above all principality and power. In Philippians, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. doesn't mean high in the sense of better. I mean, that's part of it. But it's also talking about physically, in locality. He is in higher than the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. Peter put it this way, talking about Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. What the writer wants his readers to know is that by returning to the Jewish system of earthly priests, they're reverting to an inferior failed system. Jesus Christ, in whom they had put their trust for eternal life, is far better as our high priest, once for all, than anything Judaism could ever offer. And to tie themselves to an earthly system would mean, in essence, to tether themselves to the earth and miss out on the heavenly blessings that come with knowing Christ. Because of the new and living way that's been opened up for us in heaven... <coughs> These believers, and us by extension, all believers of the present age, can have access to boldly approach the throne in heaven. You know, on our way to church this morning, Faith and I listened to a, a Crowder song. Faith always puts together a, a playlist when I ask her to, and just great Christian music that just to listen to as we prepare our hearts here on the you know, 45-minute drive. And the first song out of the chute, she had no idea what, I was preaching on um, was a Crowder song uh, called Earth Has No Sorrow. And I just couldn't believe listening to the words how appropriate it was for what I'd been thinking about and praying about and preparing all week long from Hebrews 7. The song goes, So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary. Rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Let me say that again. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. 
And I think that's the essence of Hebrews chapter 7. These readers were focusing on all of the dangers and the, the, the chaos and things collapsing around them and maybe loved ones, perhaps even family members who had been killed. And he, the writer comes along and says, you're looking at the wrong thing. You need to set your mind on things above. You need to look heavenward where Christ is. And so to do that, and this is going to get a little technical, but I'll try to go through it pretty quickly just to sort of make the case. Now, we're not Jews, I assume. Uh, maybe some of you are. I don't know. But uh, So we don't understand the cultural context maybe the way they would have, but it was very important to them that these points that the writer was making. He had to show and demonstrate that Jesus Christ is a high priest like no other. They understood the priestly system from the Old Testament law, and he's trying to basically knock down all of their presuppositions one at a time and say, this is the guy. And where is he? He's higher than the heavens. You need to focus on him, right? And so he contrasts three earthly priesthoods in Israel's history with one heavenly priesthood, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. So we're going to look at the earthly uh, priesthoods first, but before we dive into that, we need to pick up the context from the end of chapter 6. It's been a while, obviously, since we were there, but we left off with verse 20. So Hebrews 6.20 says this, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a priest from history who represented a foretaste or a foreshadowing, you might say, of the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ. Uh, he's come up before in Hebrews. I mentioned him when we were in chapter 5, and I uh, talked about, uh, do you know your ABCs, and are you you're in good hands, and those, those were some of the messages from chapter 5. But I promised at that time that we would have more to say about Melchizedek in the chapters to come, and here we are. Chapter 7 is a key passage. But back in chapter 5, he said, called by God as high priest, again, talking about Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, he's one of three earthly priests that the writer's going to talk about, but this time, this one, he represents a foreshadowing of the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ. He was a mysterious figure. He appeared on the scene about 2,000 years before Christ uh, in the time of Abraham. And let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about him. He said, For this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So he was two things. He was a king and a priest. The reason Melchizedek foreshadowed the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ, with a capital P, is because he, unlike any other earthly priest, held two offices, just as Jesus does. He is both king and priest. Uh, Melchizedek perfectly foreshadowed Christ's roles as both a king and a priest. We see these both of these roles foretold by other uh, prophets. For example, Zechariah the prophet, speaking of the Messiah, Christ, said, He shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. Now, who rules on a throne? A king, right? And he shall be a priest on his throne. So there you have Zechariah predicting that Christ, like Melchizedek before Zechariah, as a foreshadowing, is going to be both a king 
and a priest. And then we've already looked at this a second ago, uh, but remember what he said about Christ in Hebrews 4, chapter 4, seeing that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, the Jesus, the Son of God. So he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, which is not the Davidic kingdom throne that he will someday physically sit in on earth. It's a throne in waiting. But he is still king, even though he hasn't taken on the role of king. Remember, we talked about the four offices of Christ. I've brought this up a lot. But Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Remember, he didn't become the Son of God in Bethlehem. He has always existed. He's God. But he took on human flesh, became God with us, Emmanuel. And as such, he has four offices. He came as a prophet. Deuteronomy says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Notice the capital P like me from your midst, from your brethren, and him you shall hear. That's Jesus, the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then he's also a priest. He uh, is presently today serving as the high priest, which is the whole point the writer of Hebrews is making. And again, Hebrews 4.14, which we've looked at several times, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. But he will return someday as a king. And uh, Revelation 19 says when he comes back riding on a white horse, he's going to have a name written on his robe and on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then someday when time shall be no more at the end of time on the great white throne judgment, he will sit and judge the world. And Timothy, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 4, the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. At the end of the thousand-year portion of the kingdom on the old earth, before time shall be no more and the new heavens and new earth are created, he's going to function as a judge. Now, he's all four of these because he is the immutable God, but he's functionally, currently, right now, the priest. When he returns, he will take on the roles of king and judge. So Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ's priestly uh, ministry. Another way Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ is that like Christ, Melchizedek brings comfort and refreshment and encouragement and strength. Notice how he says when Melchizedek met Abraham, he blessed him. He refreshed and strengthened him. And what did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We talked about Jesus' role in bringing rest back in chapter 4 in our series. I know I'm bringing up a lot of the past, but if you're like me, you can't remember what happened yesterday, much less six months ago, so or four months ago, whatever it was. But in chapter 4, I titled that message, Rest for the Weary. It was talking about Christ's role in bringing rest. So Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ by bringing rest, but also by being a king of righteousness and peace. Back to Hebrews 7, the writer says that he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Well, what do we know about Christ? He's bringing both, right? Uh, what, did he, what did Ephesians 2 tell us? He himself, Jesus, is our peace. But he's also our righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when you trusted Christ, if you have, and I hope you have, if you haven't, you need to do that now. It's not something you can do by walking an aisle or signing a card or raising a hand or doing any other kind of public action. It's a matter of personal faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. And for those who do have this faith that he's, what Paul is talking about here in Romans 10, they then receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Right now you're trying to use your own self-righteousness and that'll never measure up. But by faith, 
we receive the righteousness of Christ. So he is king of both peace, someday it'll be global peace, and righteousness. Back to Hebrews 7, there's another way that Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ. Notice the writer says he's without father and without mother. He's without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he's made like the Son of God. In other words, as far as the historical record is concerned, there's no indication of where Melchizedek came from. We don't have his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. Now, this does not mean that Melchizedek was actually Christ. You're missing the point. This is, comes down to number one rule of hermeneutics, observation. Notice that it says he was made like the Son of God. That's a figure of speech, a simile using like or as, and he's just foreshadowing Christ. He wasn't Christ. You can't be like the Son of God and be the Son of God at the same time, right? So uh, he was just foreshadowing, and the biblical record, God and his divine authority and authorship of Scripture, uh, sort of foreshadowed Christ by telling us nothing about his genealogy and the beginning of his time on earth uh, or the end of his uh, life. And in the same way, Christ today is a continual priest. That's the whole point that the writer of Hebrews is making, is that we have a priest today. Earthly priests, they come and go. Not Christ. He's there. You know, waiting to be a priest forever, like David said in Psalm 110, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ. And that's the first earthly priesthood the writer talks about. But then he's going to go through time. That was during the time of Abraham. Now he's going to go after uh, the children of Israel leave Egypt, and they get established in Canaan across the Jordan, and they, they start with the Levitical priesthood. And so the second earthly priest, which is an inferior priest, according to the writer of Hebrews, is the Levitical priesthood. It in no way fulfilled what the Melchizedekan priesthood foreshadowed. It was totally different. And he goes on, still talking about Melchizedek here in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. So he's elevating Melchizedek as the foreshadowing, the foretaste of Christ, above Levi. Now if you're a Jew, even a Jewish believer who's not long ago come out of the Jewish system, this is a little bit sacrilegious. I mean, how could you be so critical of the Levi, one of the, the, the seeds of Levi and the, the, the genealogy of Levi and those priests who through the centuries have served an important function in the sacrificial system. Now we're not going to look at all of the verses, but the writer goes on in this section to talk about how the descendants of Abraham paid tithes to their priests, the Levites. But Abraham himself paid tithes to Melchizedek himself. Again, Melchizedek is better. He goes on in verse 7 to talk about how greater people bless lesser people. So the fact that Melchizedek, the foreshadowing of Christ, blessed Abraham, shows his superiority over the descendants of Abraham, which were the Levites. Abraham, Aaron, all the Levitical priests, they all died. They went the way of all flesh. They lived out their days and they died. But Moses, as he goes on to say in verse 8, doesn't give us a record or a witness of Melchizedek's death. And Christ lives on in, as a priest forever. 
Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Even Levi, he says, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So clearly the Levitical priesthood is inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood and by extension Christ's. And so for the readers to flee to Judaism for safety is illogical. But then he's going to talk about Aaron. Aaron, who was a Levite, Moses' brother, and he was Israel's first high priest, one of the Levites. And after Aaron, all priests descended from the Aaronic line, and it too was a failure. The Levitical priestly line was inferior. Aaron turned out very plainly to be a failure in accomplishing what Christ can only accomplish through his death. Uh, notice what he says in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, in other words, it's not. If Aaron's priesthood, which grew out of the Levitical priesthood, was all that was needed, why did another priest, namely Christ, have to arise that goes all the way back to Melchizedek prior to the Levitical line? Not only was Melchizedek greater than Aaron, but Melchizedek's priesthood replaced Aaron's because Christ's priesthood replaced Aaron's. And what did the writer tell us? Christ is a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek. Since God had promised that the coming Messiah would be a priest after Melchizedek's order, it's clear that he intended to terminate the Levitical priesthood because it was inadequate. It was only temporary. He goes on to say, If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? He's trying to get his listeners to see, look, this Jesus who saved you is something unique. He's not just another priest in the line of Aaron. He's something altogether different. He goes on, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priest. In other words, Jesus did not descend from the tribe of Levi, did he? He descended from the tribe of Judah. Because all those earthly priesthoods were inadequate. It all pointed, it all was a shadow pointing toward the ultimate substance of Christ. Going on, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Paul tells us the entire system of the law, including the priestly duties, was just temporary and put in place until Christ came. Galatians 3.24 And Christ is the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave, unlike any other earthly priest. And he sits today at the right hand of the throne of God, functioning as our priest. Listen to what he says in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Again, that would have gotten the attention of these readers. What? You're saying our Levitical priesthood and all those descendants of Aaron, they were all unprofitable and weak? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's exactly what they needed to do. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to draw near to God. But there's one more priesthood that outshines all the others. So we saw the earthly priesthoods, but what about the heavenly priesthood? 
How can we experience, if we return to the opening question, how can we experience heaven on earth in the midst of such chaos? Well, it's going to sound obvious, but if you want to find heaven, it starts by looking heavenward. You can't focus on earthly troubles and expect to find heaven. The answer to suffering is not found on earth. It's found in heaven with the flawless priest, Jesus Christ. So we saw the foreshadowing in Melchizedek, the inferior in the Levitical priesthood, the failure in Aaron, and now we see the flawless in our heavenly priest. Notice what he says. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. That word surety there means guarantee. If you've been following along in our uh, What Lies Ahead Sunday School uh, series, you know that I talked about the covenant program of God starting in Genesis chapter 12 that guarantees the fulfillment of God's plan of the ages, that one-sixth of the Bible that is yet to come. And that, so he's talking here about that covenant. And it's a guarantee through Jesus' shed blood on the cross that that will come. And again, his priesthood is unchangeable. Again, I encourage you to, to read Same God, New Year, my little devotional for this past year. Um, you know, it's a new year, but uh, God never changes. God doesn't take his cue from man on earth, and neither does Jesus. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word uttermost there, the Greek word literally means completely. So we have our eternal salvation from the penalty of sin, but someday we're going to ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin when either we die if the Lord tarries His coming and, and, and we go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord because to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, or if the Lord comes back in our day while we're still living, either way, we're, our salvation will be complete. So we've already been saved eternally from the penalty of sin, but we look forward to being saved once and for all from the very presence of this sin-stricken world. A world of inequities, a world of injustices, a world of lies and deception that most people are buying into more and more. Remember Paul said, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The earthly system of priest was limited. It could not address every situation that might come up. But Christ provides the solution to whatever we may be facing because he always lives to make intercession for us. This is what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's what he's doing right now, sitting at the right hand of God. And we can come to the Lord boldly and say, Lord, I blew it. I agree with you, God, that what I did was wrong. And I want that restored intimacy of, of fellowship. Nothing can change our relationship, but that fellowship is what we long for. And so the key verse, we end where we started, Hebrews 7.26. I told you we were going to come back to those adjectives. Our high priest is fitting because he's holy. Holy. Now this is not the normal word, the usual word for holy in Scripture, hagios. This is hasios. And it means pleasing to God or more specifically sanctioned by God. So what the writer is saying here, what they would have understood in the original context, is this priest is sanctioned by God. The other ones were too, but don't think that this was some kind of a coup or an unplanned takeover. This has been God's plan all along. He foreshadowed it in Melchizedek. He sort of prefigured it through the Jewish priestly service 
in an incomplete way, like all of the Jewish sacrificial systems, they were a shadow. But it finds its fulfillment ultimately in God's designate, sanctioned by God, holy, the high priest Jesus Christ. He was harmless. Harmless here is the word akakos. It's kakos, which means evil with a negative in front of it, a. Kind of like in English, if you put an a in, some front, of, in front of a word, it, it negates it. So like a, an atheist is someone who believes there's no God. Well, akakos means no evil. So harmless here means without fault, innocent. Jesus is not only sanctioned by God and without fault, but he's undefiled. Undefiled means pure and untainted. And he's separate from sinners. Uh, separate means divided away from, not part of the group. In other words, the writers already talked about how Jesus Christ was chosen among men. He was fully human. But he was also fully God. That's what makes him different. He wasn't just a priest like anyone else. He was a priest like no other. But most of all, he's higher than the heavens. He has power, dominion, and authority over everything else. If you want to have heaven on earth, you've got to reach for the stars. He finishes out by reminding us that he does not need daily, as those priests did, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The other priests brought the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Jesus has been perfected forever. He's passed through the heavens. So therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. If we want heaven on earth, we've got to set our mind on things above, where Christ is. Look at what Paul said. If then, and the word if there means since, since you, believers, have been raised with Christ to new life, you've been reborn by faith, you should seek those things which are above. Because our citizenship is no longer here on earth. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So here's the takeaway. Once you ask this question, are you availing yourself of your heavenly resources in Christ? If you want to endure the trials of life that may come full speed ahead. I mean, again, I'm not a prophet. I don't want to be a pessimist either. My hope is not in the political system and it's not in a country or a nation. It's in the Lord. But we love our nation. We love what, you know, our heritage but we're troubled by what we see coming down the pike, and we should be. But not to the point of desperation and throwing in the towel. We've got to go to heaven. And so here's the catchphrase I want you to remember uh, as the takeaway. Don't wait until you die to go to heaven. Don't wait until you die to go to heaven. We can go there now. And I have a feeling we're going to need to spend a lot more time in heaven if we're going to abide the difficulties of earth. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would give us strength and uh, hope and encouragement the way these first century recipients were undoubtedly encouraged by this letter. Lord, help us to remember these timeless truths that our hope is in heaven, our hope is in you, that you've got this, that your plan is being worked out. And even though tough days may come, nothing can compare to the glory of knowing you 
and seeing you face to face someday. Lord, we pray if there's one here that doesn't know you, either listening on the on video or maybe here in person, we pray that today your Holy Spirit would just shake them up, get a hold of them, rec- help them recognize their sin and their need for a Savior, and that in simple childlike faith they would trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can save. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.